Chapter 2 of The Beloved Vagabond by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 2 The Lotus Club was the oddest society I have met. The premises consisted of one long dingy room with two dingy windows, the furniture of a long table covered with dirty American cloth, a multitude of wooden chairs, an old sofa, two dilapidated dinner wagons, and a frame against the wall from which, by means of clips, churchwarden pipes depended stem downwards, and by each clip was a label bearing a name. On the table stood an enormous jar of tobacco. A number of ill-washed glasses decorated the dinner-wagons. There was not a curtain, not a blind, not a picture. The further end of the room, away from the door, contained a huge fireplace, and on the wooden mantelpiece ticked a three-and-sixpenny clock. During the daytime it was an abode of abominable desolation. No one came near it until nine o'clock in the evening, when one or two members straggled in, took down their long pipes, and called for whisky or beer, the only alcoholic beverages the club provided. These were kept in great barrels in the scullery, presided over by Mrs. Housekeeper, until it was time to prepare the supper, when Cherubino and I helped ourselves. At eleven the cloth was laid. From then till half-past, members came in considerable numbers. At half-past, supper was served. A steaming dish of tripe furnished the head of the table in front of Parago, and a cut of cold beef the foot. There were generally from fifteen to thirty present, men of all classes, journalists, actors, lawyers, out-at-elbows nondescripts. I have seen one of Her Majesty's judges and a prize-fighter exchanging views across the table. A few attended regularly, but the majority seemed to be always newcomers. They supped, talked, smoked, and drank whisky until two or three in the morning, and appeared to enjoy themselves prodigiously. I noticed that on departing they wrung Parago fervently by the hand and thanked him for their delightful evening. I remembered his telling me that they came to hear him talk. He did talk sometimes so compellingly that I would stand stock-still wrapped in reverential ecstasy. Once, to the point of letting the potatoes I was handing round, roll off the dish onto the floor. I never was so wrapped again, for Cherubino picked up the potatoes, and following my frightened exit, broke them over my head on the landing by way of chastisement. The best barbers do not use hot, mealy potatoes for the hair. When the last guest had departed, Parago mounted to his attic, Mrs. Housekeeper and Cherubino went their several ways. Each went several ways, I think, for they had unchecked command during the evening over the whisky and beer barrels, and I, dragging a bundle of bedclothes from beneath the sofa, went to bed amid the fumes of tripe, gas, tobacco, alcohol, and humanity, and slept the sleep of perfect happiness. In the morning, at about eleven, I rose and prepared breakfast for Parago and myself, which we ate together in his room. For a couple of hours he instructed me in what he was pleased to call the humanities. Then he sent me out into the street for air and exercise, with instructions to walk to Hyde Park, Westminster Abbey, St Paul's Cathedral, Whiteley's. He always had a fresh objective for me, and to bring him back my views thereon, and an account of what I had noticed on the way. When I came home I delivered myself into the hands of Mrs Housekeeper, and turned scullion again. The plates, glasses, knives and forks of the previous evening's orgy were washed and cleaned, the room swept and aired, 
and a meal cooked for Mrs. Housekeeper and myself, which we ate at a corner of the long table. Parago himself dined out. On Sunday evenings the club was shut, and, as Mrs. Housekeeper did not make her appearance on the Sabbath, the remains of Saturday night's supper stayed on the table till Monday afternoon. Imagine remains of tripe thirty-six hours old. I mention this not because it is of any great interest, but because it exhibits a certain side of Parago's character. In those early days I was not critical. I lived in a maze of delight. Parago was the wonder of the earth. My bedroom, a palace chamber, and the abominable Sunday night smell pervaded my senses like the perfumes of all the Arabies. My son, said Parago one morning, in the middle of a French lesson, from the first he was bent on my learning the language, my son, I wonder whether you are going to turn out a young Caliban, and, after I have shown you the true divinity of things, return to your dam's god Setabos. He regarded me earnestly with his light blue eyes, which looked so odd in his swarthy, black-bearded face. Is there any hope for the race of Sycorax? As we had read The Tempest the day before, I understood the illusions. I, I would sooner be Ariel, master, said I by way of showing off my learning. He was an ungrateful beggar, too, said Parago. He went on talking, but I heard him not, for my childish mind quickly associated him with Prospero, and I wondered where lay his magic staff with which he could split pines and liberate tricksy spirits, and whether he had a beautiful daughter hidden in some bar of Tavistock Street, and whether the cadaverous Cherubino might not be a metamorphosed Ferdinand. He appeared the embodiment of all wisdom and power, and yet he had the air of one cheated of his kingdom. He seemed also to be of reverential age. As a matter of fact, he was not yet forty. My attention was recalled by his rising and walking about the room. "'I am making this experiment on your vile body, my little Astico,' said he, "'to prove my theory of education.' You've had, so far as it goes, what is called an excellent board-school training. You can read and write and multiply 64 by 37 in your head, and you can repeat the kings of England. If you had been fortunate and gone to a public school, they would have stuffed your brain full of Greek verbs and damned facts about triangles. But of the meaning of life, the value of life, the art of life, you would never have had a glimmering perception. I am going to educate you, my little Astico, through the imagination. The intellect could look after itself. We will go now to the National Gallery. He caught up his hat and threw me my cap, and we went out. He had a sudden breathless way of doing things. I am sure thirty seconds had not elapsed between the idea of the National Gallery entering his head and our finding ourselves on the stairs. We went to the National Gallery. I came away with a reeling, undistinguishable mass of form and colour before my eyes. I felt sick. Only one single picture stood out clear. Pargo talked Italian art to my uncomprehending ears all the way home. Now, said he, when he had settled himself comfortably in his old wickerwork chair again, which of the pictures did you like best? Why that particular picture, save that it is the supreme art of a supreme genius, should have alone fixed itself in my mind, I do not know. It has been one of the psychological puzzles of my life. A, a man's headmaster, said I, I can't describe it, but I think I could draw it. Draw it? he echoed incredulously. 
Yes, master. He pulled a stump of pencil from his pocket and threw it to me. I felt luminously certain I could draw the head. A curious exultation filled me as I sat at the corner of the table before a flattened-out piece of paper that wrapped up tea. Parago stood over me as I drew. Nom de Dieu de nom de Dieu, cried he. It is Gian Bellini's Doge Loredano. But what made you remember that picture? And how in the name of board schools could you manage to draw it? He walked swiftly up and down the room. Nom de Dieu de nom de Dieu. I used to draw horses and men on my slate at school, said I modestly. Parago filled his porcelain pipe and walked about strangely excited. Suddenly he stopped. My little Astico, said he, you had better go down and help Mrs. Housekeeper to wash up the dirty plates and dishes for your soul's sake. What my soul had to do with greasy crockery, I could not in the least fathom. But the next morning, Parago gave me a drawing lesson. It would be false modesty for me to say that I did not show talent, since the making of pictures is the means whereby I earn my living at the present moment. The gift, once discovered, I exercised it in and out of season. My son, said Parago, when I showed him a sketch of Mrs. Housekeeper as she lay on the scullery floor one Saturday night, unable to go any one of her several ways, I am afraid you are an artist. Do you know what an artist is? I didn't. He pronounced the word in tones of such deep melancholy that I felt it must denote something particularly depraved. It is the man who has the power of doing up his soul in whitey-brown paper parcels and selling them at three halfpence apiece. This was a breakfast one morning while he was chipping an egg. Only two eggs furnished forth our repast, and I was already deep in mine. He scooped off the top of the shell, regarded it for a second, and then rose with the egg and went to the window. Since you have wings, you had better fly, said he, and he threw it into the street. My little Astico, he added, resuming his seat, I myself was once an artist, now I am a philosopher. It is much better. He cheerfully attacked his bread and butter. Whether it was a sense of his goodness or my own greediness that prompted to me, I know not. But I pushed my half-eaten egg across to him and begged him to finish it. He looked queerly at me for a moment. I accept it, said he, in the spirit in which it is offered. The great man solemnly ate my egg, and pride so filled my heart that I could scarcely swallow. A smaller man than Parago would have refused. From what I gathered from conversations overheard whilst I was serving members with tripe and alcohol, it appeared that my revered master was a mysterious personage. About eight months before, he had entered into the then unprosperous club for the first time as a guest of the founder and proprietor, an old actor who was growing infirm. He talked vehemently. The next night he took the presidential chair which he since occupied to the club's greater glory. But whence he came, who and what he was, no one seemed to know. One fat man, whose air of portentous wisdom and insatiable appetite caused me much annoyance, proclaimed him a Russian nihilist, and asked me whether there were any bombs in his bedroom. Another man declared that he had seen him leading a bear in the streets of Warsaw. His manner offended me. "'Have you ever been to Warsaw, Mr. Ulysses?' asked the fat man. Mr. Ulysses was the traditional title of the head of the Lotus Club. "'This gentleman says he saw you leading a bear there, Master,' 
I piped wrathfully in my shrill treble. There was a sudden silence of consternation. All, some five and twenty, laid down their knives and forks and looked at Parago, who rose from his seat. Throwing out his right hand, he declaimed, Andromoi enepe musa polutropon, osmala polla plagithe epe troiz iepon, potelithron epesen polon danthropon iden astea kai nun egno. Does anyone know what that is? A young fellow at the end of the table said it was the opening lines of the Odyssey. You are right, sir, said Parago, threading his fingers through his long black hair. They tell of my predecessor in office, the first president of this club, who was a man of many wanderings and many sufferings, and had seen many cities and knew the hearts of men. I, gentlemen, have had my odyssey, and I have been to Warsaw, and, with a rapier flash of a glance at the gentleman who had accused him of leading bears, I know the miserable hearts of men. He rapped on the table with his hammer. Astico, come here, he shouted. I obeyed, trembling. If ever you lift up your voice again in this assembly, I will have you boiled and served up with onion sauce, second-hand tripe that you are, and you shall be eaten underdone. Now go. I felt shriveled to the size of a pea. Beneath Parago's grotesqueness ran an unprecedented severity. I was conscious of the accusing glare of every eye. In my blind bolt to the door, I had the good fortune to run headlong into a tray of drinks which Cherubino was carrying. The disaster saved the situation. Laughter rang out loud, and the talk became general. The interlude was forgotten, but the man who said he had seen my master leading bears in Warsaw vanished from the club for ever after. The next morning, when I entered Parago's room to wake him, I found him reading in bed. He looked up from his book. "'My little Astico,' said he, "'leading bears is better than calumny, but indiscretion is worse than both.' and that is all I heard of the matter. I never lifted up my voice in the club again. There was a curious black case on the top of a cupboard in his room, which for some time aroused my curiosity. It was like no box I had seen before. But one afternoon, Parago took it down and extracted therefrom a violin, which, after tuning, he began to play. Now, although fond of music, I have never been able to learn any instrument save the tambourine, my highest success otherwise has been to figure out God Save the Queen and We Won't Go Home Till Morning on the ocarina, and to this day a person able to play the piano or the fiddle seems possessed of an uncanny gift. But in that remote period of my fresh rescue from the gutter, an executant appeared something superhuman. I stared at him with stupid open mouth. He played what I afterwards learned was one of Brahms's Hungarian dances. His lank figure and long hair worked in unison with the music, which filled the room with a wild tumult of movement. I had not heard anything like it in my life. It set every nerve of me dancing. I suppose Parago found his interest in me because I was such an impressionable youngster. When, at the abrupt finale, he asked me what I thought of it, I could scarce stammer a word. He gave me one of his queer looks while he tuned a string. I still wonder, my son, whether it would not be better for your soul that you should go on scullying to the end of time. Why, master? I asked. Sacre diable, he cried. Do you think I am going to give you a reason for everything? You'll learn fast enough. He laughed and went on playing, 
and as I listened, the more godlike he grew. The streets of Paris, said he, returning the fiddle to its case, are strewn with the wrecked souls of artists. And not London? My little Astica, he replied, I am a Frenchman, and it is our fondest illusion that no art can possibly exist out of Paris. I discovered later that he was the son of a Gascon father and an Irish mother, which accounted for his being absolutely bilingual, and indeed for many oddities of temperament. But now he proclaimed himself a Frenchman, and for a time I was oppressed with a sense of disappointment. At the board school I had bolted enough indigestible historical facts to know that the English had always beaten the French, and I had drawn the natural conclusion that the French were a vastly inferior race of beings. It was, I verily believe, the first step in my spiritual education to realise that the god of my idolatry suffered no diminution of grandeur by reason of his nationality. Indeed, he gained accession, for after this he talked often to me of France in his magniloquent way, until I began secretly to be ashamed of being English. This had one advantage, in that I set myself with redoubled vigour to learn his language. So extraordinary was the veneration I had for the man who had transplanted me from the kicks and soapsuds of my former life into this bewildering land of Greek gods and aerials and pictures and music. For the man who spoke many unknown tongues, wore a gold watch chain, had been to Warsaw and every city mentioned in my school geography, and presided like a king over an assembly of those whom as a gutter urchin I be wont to designate toffs. For the beneficent being who had provided me, Gus Smith, alias Astico, with a nightshirt, condescended to eat half my egg, and to allow me to supervise his bedchamber and maintain it in an orderly state of disintegration, hairbrushes from butter and tobacco ash from fish. For the man who, God knows, was the first of human creatures to awaken the emotion of love within my child's breast. So extraordinary was the veneration I had for him, that although I started out on this narrative by saying it was Parago's story, and not my own I proposed to tell, I hoped to be pardoned for a brief egotistical excursion. Like the gentleman in Chaucer, Parago had over his bedis hede a shelf of books to which, careless creature that he was, he did not dream of denying me access. In that attic in Tavistock Street, I read Smollett and Byron, and somehow spelt through Nana. I also found there the De Imitatione Christi, which I read with much the same enjoyment as I did the others. You must not think this priggish of me. The impressionable child of starved imagination will read anything that is printed. In my mother's house, I used to put low in the squares of newspaper in which the fried fish from Mr. Samuels had been wrapped and surreptitiously read them. Why not St. Thomas Kempis? I have in my possession now a filthy piece of paper, dropping to bits, on which is copied in my round, board-school boy handwriting, the eleventh chapter of the De Imitatione. It runs, My son, thou hast still many things to learn which thou hast not well learned yet. What are they, Lord? To place thy desire altogether in subjection to my good pleasure, and not to be a lover of thyself, but an earnest seeker of my will. Thy desires often excite and urge thee forward. But consider with thyself whether thou art not more moved for thine own objects than for my honour. If it is myself that thou seekest, thou shalt be well content with whatsoever I shall ordain. 
but if any pursuit of thine own lieth hidden within thee, behold, it is this which hindereth and weigheth thee down. Beware, therefore, lest thou strive too earnestly after some desire which thou hast conceived, without taking counsel of me, lest haply it repent thee afterwards, and that displease thee which before pleased, and for which thou didst long as for a great good. For not every affection which seemeth good is to be forthwith followed, neither is every opposite affection to be immediately avoided. Sometimes it is expedient to use restraint even in good desires and wishes, lest through importunity thou fall into distraction of mind, lest through want of discipline thou become a stumbling-block to others, or lest by the resistance of others thou be suddenly disturbed and brought to confusion. Sometimes indeed it is needful to use violence, and manfully to strive against the sensual appetite, and not to consider what the flesh may or not will, but rather to strive after this, that it may become subject, however unwillingly, to the spirit. And for so long it ought to be chastised and compelled to undergo slavery, even until it be ready for all things. And learn to be contented with little, to be delighted with things simple, and never to murmur at any inconvenience. Let no one be shocked. It was one of the great acts of devotion of my life. I copied this out as a boy, not because it counselled me in my duty towards God, but because it summed up my whole duty to Parago. Parago was me. I saw the relation between Parago and myself in every line. Had not I often fallen into distraction of mind over my drawing and books, when I ought to have been helping Mrs. Housekeeper downstairs? Was it not want of discipline that made me a stumbling block that memorable night in the club? Ought I not to be content with everything Parago should ordain? And was it not my duty to murmur at no inconvenience? Years afterwards, I showed this paper to Parago. He wept. Alas, I had not well chosen my opportunity. I remember the night after I copied the chapter, Cherubino and I helped Parago up the stairs and put him to bed. It was the first time I had seen him the worse for liquor. But when one has been accustomed to see one's mother and all her adult acquaintances dead drunk, the spectacle of a god slightly overcome with wine is neither here nor there. End of chapter 2